Chris Savage, welcome to the ND Hackers podcast. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. You are the founder of Wistia, where you create software and guides that help other businesses create and host their own professional videos and use their videos to convert more customers. And you've been working on the business since 2006. It's been quite a roller coaster ride since then. There are times where you had investors. Uh, there came a point in time where you bought out all of your investors. You've been growing at times. You've been stagnant at times. You've been wildly profitable. You've also been $17 million in debt. Uh, you've really been all over the place. How would you say things are going with Wistia today? Things are great. Um, better than ever. You know, we've, we've made a lot of mistakes over the years. And fortunately, um, some, of, you know, some of our instincts were turned into conviction through those same mistakes. And so we are in, we're in a good place. But yeah, we've, we've had our ups and downs like everybody and learned the hard way that how your company is set up really matters. Um, who you're working with really matters. Expectations you set for yourself and your team and your investors really, really matters. Like getting that right makes a big difference. I think in terms of how successful you can be and also how fulfilling the work can be. How do you measure how successful you are? Like if you're trying to paint a picture for a hypothetical podcast audience that might be listening in, how would you describe Wistia's success to them? Yeah, you know, when we started, we thought, we honestly thought we were going to sell the business six months after starting. And I thought that's what success looked like was making money. And six months after starting, we were nowhere close to selling, <clears throat> but we were enjoying what we were doing. And we continued to enjoy what we were doing. And somewhere along the way, success became, you know, hiring amazing people. It became figuring out how to get customers. It became solving hard problems. You know, it really, it's morphed. I think, you know, what you need in your career and what you're looking for and how that maps to your company and where it is, is really important. If that match is right, then for me today, it's like, I love my work. I love what we're doing. I love the creative risks we get to take. I love the products we're working on. I love the content we're making. I love how the company is set up and we're also doing really well, but doing really well, like enables all those other things. And I think it's just trying to figure out what, what it is you actually are looking for. Because, you know, when we started and thinking we were going to sell, we had that opportunity at one point, for example, and realized that for us, actually selling was going to feel like failure. And so it's, you know, what you want changes. One of my favorite parts of all the things that you've gone through is the part where you bought out your investors. What does it feel like to go from having to answer to investors and make them happy to suddenly being in full control of your own company? It's funny, you know, we, I would say we've been on a roller coaster there because when we first raised money, it felt like we had to answer to our investors. And that was stressful, but cool because, you know, we were telling them about, we had other people to tell about the business and what was happening. And so we had other people giving us advice and that was exciting and really awesome. And then the company hit this period where we didn't really have enough traction. And so we went into a deep, dark hole and just did things by ourselves. We, we didn't really talk to the investors for a few years. And that was really scary at first and then really awesome. We built up a lot of confidence. And then as the company started doing really well, the investors came back and they're like, whoa, your business is doing really well. What are we going to do with this thing? Are we going to sell it? Like, Are we going to IPO? What's happening? And there was like a different kind of pressure that was put on us. And it was that round of pressure to find an exit that made us realize that we didn't want to sell uh, when we had the opportunity to. Because we didn't feel like the work when we were just trying to optimize only for revenue growth and speed of revenue growth, it felt like the work was no longer satisfying. And actually, we weren't, we weren't even growing as fast as we wanted to. And so once we, we realized we wanted to go back to this moment of 
being profitable where we could take bigger risks. We you know, went and bought out our investors, which was scary and also incredibly freeing. Once we, you know, once yeah. we realized what we wanted to do, there hasn't been a day that I've questioned it. Um, and instead, we you know, put ourselves in a position of, instead of running at a loss, became really profitable. Instead of growing you know, with kind of like old tactics, we took crazier, long-term, bigger risks. And all of those things started to work. And so, yeah, it's felt, it's felt very freeing. Are you open at all with any numbers around how much revenue you generate or how profitable you are or how big your company is today? Yeah, we're open with some of it. Um, so we disclosed uh, last summer, so summer of 2018, that we were close to a $30 million run rate. And our profit, but we're beyond that now by quite a bit. And our profit margin is close to uh, 20%. That's got to feel so good as somebody who's in complete control of your company. If you have investors, like those are probably pretty good numbers, but it depends on how much you've raised, what kind of return they're looking for. Uh, but on your own, it's it's completely different. Yeah, it's a different it's a different feeling, um, and yeah, it feels amazing. You know, I think it's when we raised the debt, it was a scary moment because you know you have no debt now. You have seventeen point three million dollars of debt. It makes its way into your bank account, and you look at it. That one day it's in your bank account, I'm like, wow, it's a lot of money. And the next day it's gone because you bought back all these shares from your investors and employees. But it also was calming for us to do that because for Brendan and I, my co-founder and I, we felt like we'd at least, we'd taken care of the people who had taken care of us. You know, we got everyone a return. And so if things soured after raising debt, it would be on us. But at least, you know, the business was big enough that we thought we'd be fine. And yeah, it's felt it's felt really amazing to get the company profitable and really just because of the type of work we get to do. You know, now we are able to take bigger risks, bigger creative risks, things are less short term, and it's all kind of counterintuitive. I mean, most of the time when I tell people we're running profitably, they're like, "Oh, so you must be super concerned with cost and you must really be trying to eke out um, your margin." And it's actually been kind of the opposite, which is now that we've gotten there, it frees us up to do do things which we believe in, but we won't be able to track for a long time. And uh, a lot of the things that you got to do, especially in the early days, you just got to believe in them. And it turns out when you're bigger, you got to believe in them too. And for us, setting ourselves up to be profitable has allowed made it easy to make those decisions. So let's go back in time and talk about how all of this started. Let's try to get into the head of Chris Savage, circa 2005, 2006. Why did you decide to start a company instead of going a more normal route and getting a job? So we decided we decided to start because we saw the landscape of online video was starting to change. I went to school and did a lot of film and video. My real my resume was on a DVD. <laughs> and so if I want to get more work, I was like I should probably put this online. I should put my the, the films I've worked on and the videos I've worked on, I should put them online. And at the time, it was actually hard to do, and there weren't a lot of filmmaking communities in 2005. YouTube came along, and I saw that and realized, wow, one of the things that's so interesting about this is it's not the filmmakers, the people with all the content that are using it. It was truly user-generated, and it was people who had no you know, film and video experience um, whatsoever were able to get videos online and have them play. And what we realized was happening is that there was open source tools that could do the encoding of the video. 
And the what clicked for us is that this is going to open up a t- this is going to open up online video for real. Like for the first time, anyone will be able to upload it. You will not be able to need to be technical. And basically, it's going to be opportunity for people who are naive to jump into this. And so Brennan and I saw that. We started riffing on ideas of businesses that would exist if online video was really easy. We had all these different ideas. We And we wanted to start a company because we wanted to be in control. Like We didn't want bosses. We wanted to just trust ourselves. And that was enough um, to convince us to start. And you know, we had a wild first idea that was a filmmaking competition website. Within a couple months of starting, we thought it was a bad idea, but we had started and we told everyone we had started. So we felt like we couldn't go back and we just kind of, you know, burned the boats. And so we just kept going and kept searching. And it took us about a year to find our way to the kernel of what uh, Wistia is today. How do you go from having an idea that's a a bad one to pivoting onto a good idea? Because a lot of people are working on bad ideas. Arguably, most people are working on like ideas that aren't really tenable. (laughs) I, so, you know, the way that we did it back then was we were just constantly commiserating with other startups. So we were going to meetups all the time and telling them, you know, telling people about our product and trying to demo it. And other people were trying to demo their products. And, you know, we weren't getting any traction with our first stuff, really. But we met a lot of folks and we started to hear a lot of, of the problems that people have. And we became a little bit known in our hyper-local community as video people. And so what started to happen is after like six or eight months of that, someone would come up to us at a meetup and be like, hey, we're, I'm thinking about using video on my website. Can you help me with XYZ? Or you know, our first paying customer was somebody who wanted to privately share videos around the world. And that was really hard to do back then. There was no easy interface for it. And uh, so they came up to us and you know, we started talking through with them about what we, how we could help. And it, we kind of accidentally interviewed a ton of folks who could be our target customer. And uh, we were honest with ourselves that our other projects weren't working. And I think it was just that combination. It's, and it's still true. Like, you know, we still try to talk to customers all the time and learn from them and understand the problems they're dealing with and how we can help. And we try to be honest with ourselves about the things that we're trying that are working and the things that aren't working. You say you're kind of known as the video guys around the startup crew you hung around. It's so valuable to be the best at something in your community because then you like the rewards sort of stack up. If you're the best, like you probably get like 80% of the requests, 80% of people come to you for help. Uh, second best is like something significantly smaller. Everybody else, no one really comes to them for video help. And so you're going to get all the ideas, et cetera. And I think it's, it's crazy helpful if you're a founder to be the best at something specific. And make sure everybody knows it. So that way you sort of get these inbound ideas coming to you, these inbound requests. That's exactly right. And I I think one of the hardest things about growing a startup is sometimes you don't even know what you're the best at. You know, I feel like we've had this experience. I've talked to a lot of other folks that have had this experience where they actually do find traction. And they're like, why did we get, why did we find traction? (laughs) <laughs> you know, because maybe you did 20 different things, you know, campaigns yeah. and features and you went to different events, you gave these talks and, you know, you paid an influence or whatever, just like the, the litany of different things. It's sometimes really actually hard to know what is connecting with people. And yet you have to, you have to be in tune with that because as you get to those moments in your business where you need to take a big risk and you need to bet on the future, you know, where people are going to go. 
you got to lean into the stuff that you believe that you're the best at and or that you're ideally the best in the world at. And that's, yeah, it's funny because it's, I think it happens in the beginning and then it keeps happening and it's this constant search, like what are we actually the best at now and how does that help us figure out what we can do best next? I want to talk about how you were confident enough to actually start a business because probably most people listening in have not reached that point yet. They're not even, you know, getting started. A lot of the founders that I talk to, they feel comfortable starting a company because they have a fallback plan. For example, they might be a software engineer and so they know at least there's still a lucrative career waiting for them if their business doesn't work out. But I've also talked to people who are just so confident that their business would be a huge success that they didn't worry at all about having a fallback plan. Where would you say you fell on that spectrum? I was pretty sure we'd have a fallback. My co-founder is an engineer, <clears throat> was working at a software company building software. I was working in film and video and I was actively getting jobs. And so it didn't seem that scary that we would have to go back if we needed to. But we also felt this, we felt this opportunity existed. And actually one of the most important things for us was we were 22 and 23 when we started. And so our lifestyle was still very much college, a college lifestyle. And we were living very, very cheaply. And we thought to ourselves, if we start something now, we will actually be able, we don't have to change our lifestyle. We can continue to live very cheaply and that will let us do this for much longer. That'll give us more runway to try. And our fear was if we waited too long, then we'd get real careers, we'd make real money, and then we'd be in trouble because it would be so hard to give that up. And so it was kind of, it was the very beginning of our careers when we took the risk. And yes, we had some fallback, but more we were worried that, you know, if we waited till we were 30, it would just be a bigger decision. Not that you can't start a company when you're 30. Of course you can. I know tons of great founders doing that all the time. It just can feel like a bigger decision to do that. Yeah, that's exactly how I was reasoning about it. I was also like in my early 20s when I first started getting into sort of the tech business world. I'm 32 now. But I was like, yeah, you know, at some point, if I like take a job at Google, I'm going to be really addicted to that salary and it's going to feel really good. And you always kind of want your life to be increasing. It's really hard to like take a step back and say, oh, yes. you know what? I'm going to get rid of my salary and just go back to like, you know, the, the Wild West and see what happens. Uh, so I think that's a really huge advantage you can have as a young founder. But then again, like probably most of the people that I interview on the show have started their companies in their 30s. And so some people just somehow get over that hurdle. Totally. And I mean, I, I think it's you start to see opportunities that you didn't act on and what happened, and you realize you could execute on those things. You learn a lot of those things that if we we're going back and doing Wistia again, I think we could do parts of it much faster from what we know now. And I'm sure anyone who is, especially if you're working in the same industry that you want to jump into, as you get more experience, there's a lot of stuff that you will be able to shortcut. You'll know the people to hire. There's all these things you can do more quickly, actually as you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s. And I think that for me, it was just that lifestyle at that moment. I had trouble imagining, you know, I imagined having a family in my future. And I imagined all those things far off. And I was like, well, if I have that, it's going to feel scarier to do. And that was helpful for us. Like it let us be really patient because while Wistia has been successful, I'm super thankful for that. It took a hell of a long time, you know, before we really got traction. And, you know, years and years and years, I think six years into the business, we're still five people. I did not expect that. And if you told me that that's what was going to happen when I started, 
I would have thought that's crazy. There's no way I will continue to do it, you know, but it ended up being fun and rewarding nevertheless. And so we continued on and, you know, now we're over our, I think we're 110 people or so 115 people a day and the company's still growing quickly. And so it's, it's funny, like it's just figuring out what you need to help sustain you through that, those hard times really. I love that point you made that when you're older, you have a lot more experience, a lot more knowledge. You're smarter. You have more connections. You're probably just going to be a better founder. You said that if you could go back in time, there are things you could have done to grow Wistia more quickly. Uh, let's talk about those. How did you find your first customers once you came up with your, your sort of good idea and you pivoted away from your, your bad filmmaking competition idea? And how might you have done things differently if you could go back? Yeah, so a lot of that stuff went... It's funny. At the time, it felt excruciatingly slow. And now looking back on it, it feels really fast. But So we did the filmmaking competition idea for like two months. Then we tried like three other ideas in succession in the course of another two months. And then we settled on trying to do a portfolio website for artists. So it was a little bit more broad. We'd have filmmakers and photographers and musicians. And we did build that and launch that. Had about 500 people using that actively. But we couldn't get it to really grow. And it didn't seem like very viable that we were going to be able to make money. And so a part of that, though, we had is we'd solved the video hosting problem and encoding and delivery and all of this. Uh, we were built on cloud from the beginning. And so like, you know, our first bills were, I think our first bandwidth bill was 43 cents. And like a year later, we're still spending like $2 a month on bandwidth. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that was allowing us to sustain in a world where like two years before, it would have been hundreds of dollars a month for our cost to start. We could never have started. So we're in that world. We knew we had these video, this video data that was really we thought it was valuable, this ability to let someone upload a video and code it, deliver it, uh, make it fast. We had a player and we were building tools and just trying lots of different stuff for that filmmaking community. And so we talked to a friend who worked at a medical device company and they were sending DVDs around the world that had videos of surgeries they were doing. And they were doing clinical trials in South America and in Europe and wanted to, uh, what would happen is they'd do a, a, you know, a surgery, they would take the DVD, they'd ship it back to Massachusetts, and then hopefully they would look at the video, and then they could iterate on the device. But the problem was shipping something overnight from Chile is like a two-day prospect. So it was a slow part of their process. And so when we talked to them, they heard of us as the video guys, they told us about what they were doing, and we'd actually built something in our portfolio website, which is a way to privately share video that was designed for people who were making videos for clients. So we said, oh, I think we can help you solve this problem. They said, that sounds great. We'll pay you to build this. We said, don't pay us to build it. Just pay us a monthly fee. We made up some pricing with fake prices on, of course, because that's how you do it. Highest price was $400 a month. They looked at it. They said, we'll take that. It's the best. And we had like in about two weeks, we had taken that stuff we'd built and spun it off to be its own product. And they started using it. And then we just started through that first year of networking, we just started, you know, talking to people and calling people. And, you know, we talked to production companies and people were using video for training and basically anywhere where at the time people were sending DVDs around and we could do it faster, cheaper, more securely with collaboration. And so that is really how we got our foothold. And so within a year of getting onto Wistia, we had about 10 customers. We had some big names. We were raising our first angel round 
So, you know, while the absolute numbers were small, it was a lot of traction. So I, I think going back, that stuff went pretty quickly and a lot of the discovery went pretty quickly. I would say the things that I would do differently is we really thought that we were doing everything for the first time and we should, you know, from a blank slate on every problem um, that we would need to build out in the business, like, you know, whether it's sales or support or marketing, whatever, we always tried to innovate on everything. And in hindsight, there are aspects of our business that are the same in any other company. And um, had we not tried to innovate on all those things, we would have gotten way faster. We would have hired more people who had done it before. And I think there's a lot of things that we could have captured more opportunity that was sitting right there just by slight differences in how we were building out our team and the way we were solving problems. It's tough when you get into that builder's mindset. You have customers, you're building features, you're, you're setting up email accounts and websites. It's really tough to like take a pause and say, okay, what has already been done? You know, let me read some stuff about how others are doing these things. You just like, you have momentum and building, so why not just keep building more stuff? Yeah, and it's it's kind of the same thing. Like, which of these things are we doing? Do we need to be the best in the world at? You know, and we were thinking we had to be the best in the world at absolutely everything, and that's not actually true. And um, when you feel like you have to be the best world at absolutely everything that you're doing, you end up putting extra effort into some things and relearning certain things that other people have learned. And that can be brutal. And also, you know why you end up doing everything that you're doing. So that part of it is is great. But um, yeah, I think there's some things there that if I were to go again, I would, I would go faster on. You know, one thing that really stands out when you're talking about this discovery process, it's just how quickly you're iterating through all these different new ideas. It wasn't just one idea over the course of a year. It was like, it seemed like every two months you were changing ideas, you were talking to people. And it's a pretty consistent pattern that I've found interviewing people. A lot of people try out a lot of really quick ideas. And it sounds like the ultimate thing that you ended up with only took you a couple of weeks to build once your, once your first customer said, yeah, well, I'll pay for this. Uh, yeah, how literally. beneficial yeah. do you think it was for you to, to kind of have this process of continually starting new things rather than just working on one thing and trying to make it work for the whole year. Yeah, I think it was quite critical that we were constantly trying new things. And we were honest with ourselves. Like we would do something and then we'd ask ourselves, if you multiplied this by a hundred, would it still work? Would there be opportunity there? If you multiply it by a thousand, if you multiply a million. And we tried to evaluate how scalable these things were from the get-go, which also, you know, is it was a very hard thing to do. Like we had a we had a potential early relationship, like early customer relationship with HBO at one point. And uh, we got into talks with them about basically being the provider of their dailies. And the dailies is, you know, they make a DVD every day back then, all the sh- all the shoots from a show. And then they take the DVD and they send it around to everyone who works on it, all the producers and editors and what have you. And those are the daily, the daily footage. And so people would look at the dailies to see how production was going. And we were talking to them about putting that all into Wistia and having these dailies for all their shows in Wistia. And this happened crazy early through like an insane connection. And so we met with HBO, we met with head of production. We were looking at a deal with them that was close to a million dollars a year, it was like seven hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, and then we realized, Brandon and I realized at one point, like if we were to do that deal, that there would be no, they would be our biggest customer, 
and there would be no way that we could not do the things that they asked and you know build the product that they wanted which seems like a, a good thing right you'd think that seems like a something that everyone you know getting hbo that early would be a game changer for the business but our concern was if we will just end up being this another custom backend tool for hollywood and we'll never break out into doing something bigger and so yeah we we looked at that and eventually decided not to do it and actually walked away from the deal uh, because we felt like there would be a bigger opportunity to help lots of small and medium sized businesses rather than just helping like you know the high end back back end studios and uh, that was one of those ones that was like very hard decision to make and you're not yeah. sure if it's the right thing to do and looking back it definitely was but uh, yeah we just tried to look you know in terms of that quick iteration is this is if you multiply this by can you multiply this by ten or or a thousand and like is this going to be the life that we want to live and the business that we want to run or not Sounds like in general, you're just a very future-focused person. You're never uh, sort of overwhelmed by what's going on in the here and now. You're always sort of thinking, you know, five, 10 years from now, am I going to be happy with this decision that I made, right? Am I going to yeah. be able to start a company as easily in the future as I can now when I'm a 23-year-old, right? Am I going to be able to build this into a big business, even though we might have HBO as a customer? What's this going to look like in the future? How can other people who are listening in who want to start a company uh, ask themselves the same questions? Like, what can they, what should they be thinking about when they're starting a company that they really need to get right early on so they don't end up regretting some of their earlier decisions later? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I think it's right that I have always tried to look far into the future. And I think it's a, it's a skill like anything else. You just have to practice it. And I think from the beginning, it's kind of when you're building a company, a lot of the first decisions are, you know, who are your customers going to be? And you're searching for the right target customer that actually you can serve better than anybody else. And you can give them a great product and a great solution. And the question you want to ask yourself there is, if I have relationships that mimic this one that are 10 times more than this or 100 times more than this or 1,000 times more than this, like is that going to be something that we can sustain? Is that going to be something that we want to do? And you should actually be you know, kind of evaluating who your first customers are going to be through that lens. Or... Another thing that's similar is the values that you have when you have a small team in the early days. So if you're sacrificing on some of your own values with the people you hire, the decisions that are being made, you have to expect that those things will multiply as the company gets bigger. And so it's just kind of this practice of trying to take whatever your current situation is and imagine it being 10,000 times greater, 10,000 times more. And if you could do that, it often makes it easier, I think, to make those decisions in the short term that affect the long term. Ten thousand—it's a big number. Um, it's got to be big. It's got to be. It's got to be big. If because if it's if you have ten customers and two of them you feel like are doing sketchy things, but it's like it's fine because you just need that revenue. That might seem okay, but you're sending a signal to everyone on your team that that's acceptable, and yourself included, and so. It doesn't take much, but like if you suddenly have 100 customers and 20 of them are sketchy, 20% of your customer base is not good. It, those things compound. That's the crazy thing about it. And um, it's actually why some of the hardest decisions you're going to make are the ones that are... It's actually about you slowing down aspects of your business so that over time, the right, the right relationships, the right business model, the right customers are 
you know, the, the high density of the right decks. So let's fast forward a few years. You guys raised the money from angel investors. You're running this business. It seems like you got some good traction early on, but you didn't grow as fast as you wanted to. I think you said five years later, you still had five people on your team, which is not as fast as you thought you would have been able to grow. Why was that? What stopped you from sort of carrying on with this initial traction? And what stopped you from being able to multiply it as fast as you thought? So the stuff that stopped us was, you know, our market was way slower than we thought, grew much slower than we thought it would. It's funny. There was a moment in time when we probably had 10 competitors that had all raised five or 10 million, <laughs> like truly direct competitors to us. And we'd raised, a, you know, a million. And we were kind of like, oh my God, are we going to be run out of the water? What's going to happen? And they all need to grow their revenue so quickly they hired big sales teams and they had to bring the price of their products up to support those sales teams. And so then they couldn't find the traction. There just literally weren't enough customers. So they all went out of business. Basically, they're in the market too early. And so it was slower than we expected, but we were still growing at a pretty, at a pretty good clip. It was just small. You know, the numbers were small. And um, what eventually ended up happening is that like, we were still growing back at those days, like, you know, 100% year over year. And the numbers, the absolute numbers were small, but it, it continued. <laughs> and so it just took longer for the market to materialize. And as it started to materialize, we were sitting there with a product that companies loved and with a brand that people loved. And it was really about us changing our own mindset of, oh, wow, for us to scale this, we need to hire more people. We need to change how we're operating. We need org structure. We need all these other things. We need to turn ourselves into being a real company to match the growth in the market as opposed to, you know, kind of operating the way we were operating at that time, which was keeping things crazy lean just to make sure that we could survive. And so what did that look like exactly? Was it raising more money from investors? Was it changing your business model? Um, it didn't. So it didn't require more money from our investors. It required just like, it required a lot of things. I mean, it required, you know, assessing the business model and making some changes. It really required, you know, building an infrastructure of people to work. And that was very different. You know, we were used to everyone could jump into anything and help. And now we had people who were responsible for marketing. We had people who were responsible for sales. We had people who were responsible for like specific parts of engineering. And it, it really turned into this mode of, you know, we've been flat for a long time. Um, our org structure and thought that that was a great way to run a business. And we went face to face with that and realized that it was actually quite a bad way to run a business. And we needed very clear structure. We needed clear autonomy. We needed clear direction and clear goals and all these things that I thought would, would kill our creativity. And they ended up being the things that allowed us to continue to be creative as we scaled. And so it was really this moment of like, to go bigger on the stuff we were doing, we had to work very, very differently when you add more people to get a similar result. Let's say you're someone who's running an unstructured company, a very flat company, a company where you haven't deliberately considered all these different things that you can do to really formalize your processes and, I don't know, sort of act like a grown-up company. Uh, how do you make that transition effectively? Are there books you can read? Are there, are there people you should talk to you? Yeah, I think there are some books you can read and there's going to be people you need to hire to help you, in my opinion. But I would check out Drive by Daniel Pink. And it's about uh, the modern research about what actually motivates people at work, which is mastery, autonomy, and purpose. 
and how you actually create that for folks. That was something that was unbelievably helpful for us in terms of our thinking and, and how we would structure goals and how we would structure the way that we work at Wistia. And then the score takes care of itself by Bill Walsh is another really good one. It's just a really great example of a philosophy of how to lead and how the type of environment that you want to create so that people know that they're doing great work. And I, I think you're going to want to talk to other folks. You're going to want to... So a lot of the best advice I've ever gotten has been from people who are actually at the same stage as us or slightly in front of us or slightly behind. And uh, it's those people who have the most empathy for the challenge that you're going to be facing. Because, you know, a team feels very different when it's two people, than when it's five people, than when it's eight people, and it's 15 people. Like, all those moments feel really big and very different in terms of how you operate. And I think you want to talk to the people who have just been through it or the people who are also thinking about going through it. Because that's those are going to be the people who have the most empathy for that type of problem. Just like for myself, you know, it's been a long time since I was in the early days and the early throws starting a company and I do my best to bring myself back there if I can help. But someone who just went through it is going to give you, is going to be more empathetic and probably have better insight than I could give. Let's talk about the path you guys charted to get to $17 million in debt, where you bought back your investors, you raised the debt round. Uh, what's the story there? How did you get there from the beginning? So in 2017, we were running Wistia, trying to grow revenue and doing whatever we could to grow revenue. And we'd had an interesting thing happen. So when Wistia was about 10 million in revenue, we had a few million in profit and we were feeling really good. Um, And I would talk to potential investors, there'd be growth investors that would reach out and other folks who talked to other entrepreneurs. And the thing that everybody told me was, wow, that's so amazing. You're growing so fast. And you have so much profitability, but you know you could be growing faster if you were not profitable. You're not investing enough in growth. And everybody that we talked to gave us the same advice. And at some point, you hear enough of the same advice that you think that you must be wrong. And so Brennan and I started to become convinced that we were not pushing hard enough and we were not trying to grow the business fast enough. And you know the adage, like, if you're not growing, you're dying. So we were concerned that we would, you know, the business would die if we didn't push it hard enough. So we started hiring much more quickly. We went from being profitable to losing money on a monthly basis. And when I say losing money, I mean it. You know, we were losing, we went from losing, you know, $50,000 a month to $100,000 a month to at one point losing $330,000 in one month. And we were basically taking that cash we'd built up when we were profitable and putting everything back into growth. And, uh, you know, at first that felt really good because we were hiring a lot of people, headcount was changing. So you'd go to some event, people would say, how are things going? I'd be like, oh, we just hired all these people. We're doing all these new projects, all these new initiatives. Things on the outside seemed like things on the inside were going really well. But this change started to happen in how we operated. And we saw that when we were running at a loss, everything that we did, all the projects we did and the initiatives that we did, invariably ended up getting evaluated based on how much they lifted the short-term numbers in the business. And so it would work like this. like We'd have our business model. We'd have our plan for expenses and how we were hiring. And let's say we're losing $300,000 in February. 
Well, you do a bunch of stuff in February and you're hoping it's going to increase revenue. And if it increases revenue, then in March, you know, your expenses are what they are. And maybe you've hired a few more folks. And we're planning to, instead of losing $300,000 in March, maybe we're planning on losing 310000 something like that. Uh, well, if the revenue stuff doesn't go up, like if the revenue doesn't go up, maybe you end up losing $350,000 in March. Everyone starts saying, what just happened? Because it's a pretty big difference with how you're eating through your cash reserves. And so all the projects that you're doing start getting evaluated on this very, very short-term basis. And so what, what happened to us is all these things we had done when we were profitable, we'd gotten into doing content marketing, taking the company on retreats, um, doing wild, big campaigns, building things in the product that we believed in that we thought would help us that our customers hadn't asked for yet. All these different types of things, we stopped doing them. And it wasn't one moment, it wasn't one month, but we just, we slowly, those, it became harder and harder to do those things. And everything became around like optimization. And what my co-founder Brennan and I did not communicate to each other is that neither of us was having as much fun as we used to. Um, the optimization game was just not as exciting. It wasn't as fulfilling. We weren't creating as much. And so we were in this moment, you know, we had still had cash in the bank and we knew how quickly we wanted things to turn around and all that. But it was this moment that was stressful and was not that fun. And then out of nowhere, out of the darkness, three companies came and offered to buy Wistia. I had, uh, <laughs> you know, when you're growing a tech company, there are acquisition offers. You know, once they start coming, they come relatively frequently and people want to acquire technology. They want to acquire a team. They want to acquire customers, all these different types of things. And that had happened over the years. And we had always just flat out said no, because we were enjoying what we were doing so much. But this time, when these three offers came at the same moment, um, we started to actually take it more seriously. And both Brendan and I started to admit to each other that we were not actually having the fun that we used to have. And so we went through that process and got some offers and we're staring at the offers, you know, these, the offers with big numbers on them <laughs> and looking at that, realizing like, in having a conversation, you know, what would we do if, if we had this money? Like, what would we do if we sold the company? And it was pretty clear, you know, the companies we would sell to all were run by people that we respect and, you know, people we like, but we would probably not keep working there. They didn't really expect us to. And so two or three years down the road, we'd leave and we'd start another company. As we started describing the type of company we'd build, we thought it would be a company that focused on video. We thought it'd be a company that focused on helping small and medium-sized businesses because we really <laughs> love those types of customers. We thought it'd be a company that took a lot of creative risks. And we eventually realized that we were describing Wistia from like two years previous. And we're like, well, this is pretty dumb. So we're seriously sitting here thinking after you know 11 years, we're going to sell this company so that we have a chance of trying to build this company again. What if we actually don't do that? And we just fix our problems. And so I didn't really know about raising debt, but we, we realized that... <laughs> We realized that if we decided not to sell, that that would instantly create misalignment with our angel investors. We'd raise $1.4 in angel funding and people invest in you to get a return. <laughs> yeah. So we're sitting here staring at a damn good return and we're going to say no. That's They're not going to like that. And if we're saying no to this, like 
are they seriously supposed to expect that we're going to say yes to something else? Like probably not. And we also were giving our employees stock options. And that's also for if you sell a company. And if we're not going to sell, we have to take care of that. So we thought, how can we do this? Because we didn't have cash reserves. We've been running at a loss. And I talked to a founder who had actually bought back control of his business over like six or seven years using debt. And this is complete happenstance. And he was telling me about it. And the light bulb went on, like, we could do the same thing. We could get debt, which basically is like taking the cash that we'd make in future years, bringing it to this forward to this moment. And we could offer a buyback to our angel investors and to employees where they would get a return like that's very, very similar than if we had sold the business. And then um, the debt, getting debt, we'd have, to, we'd have to serve the debt. So we'd have to pay the debt down, which would force us to be profitable. And if instead of having this like metric that was trying to force us to grow revenue, we thought if we were to force ourselves to be profitable, that that would get us back to a place where we could take the creative risks we wanted to take. And that hopefully would set us free to like enjoy the work, but also hopefully actually build Wistia to be a more successful business. And so we decided in the summer of 2017 not to sell. We slowed down on our crazy marketing stuff we were doing, and we slowed down on hiring. We said, we're going to get the company back to being profitable. We told the whole company what we were doing. Um, and then we raised debt, I think, in like late October of that year and basically had the company back to profitability by 2018. And so we went from having you know about half a million dollars in losses in 2017 to... Six million in profit in 2018. Wow, what a turnaround! That's crazy. Those numbers are ridiculous. Uh, how do you convince someone to give you seventeen million dollar loan when you're running a tech company that's at that point in time was hemorrhaging money and, and losing cash? Yeah, so it's funny, but like you'd think it'd be really hard, and it is generally. But what we found is that we got Wistia is has a lot of customers. And so you model all this stuff out, you look at the expansion, you look at the chart, and you like you look at how things are going. And actually there's a it's pretty predictable when you look at the revenue. And so when we worked with the folks who funded us, this group called Excel KKR, they basically dug deep into our unit economics and tried to figure out how predictable our revenue was. And um, they got comfortable that our, our revenue would do what we said it would do, and we also got comfortable in that process. And so they were really taking a bet on us as to whether or not that would that bet would come true. And so the debt they gave us was like a higher interest rate because of that. Like we were a more risky investment or you know, more risky uh, yeah, debt investment at that moment than a company that had lots of evidence of profitability. And so the cool thing about all this is because we became so profitable we ended up being able to refinance the debt. Um, and we did that at the end of last year. And so our interest rates got way lower. We were able to pay down more of the debt. And so now we have, of the 17.3, I think we have like about $14 million of debt at today. You know, another thing that's, that's crazy is you met this founder who basically had done the perfect thing that served as a solution for you. What do you think you would have done in this sort of dire situation if you had never met this founder? It was never an option on your radar that you could use debt to dig yourself out of this hole? Um, I think if we had not done, if I had not met them, what we would have done is like 
gotten the company back to being profitable, and then we'd have to do a series of buybacks. And so the thing that would have been painful about that is that if you don't get one deal to reset everything, you would have to do many deals and many negotiations. And it's possible. I know folks that are doing it, and it is a possible thing. But for us, we we just really were focused on how do we get through one one deal to get us there. And I, I actually kind of think we might have found our way to it anyway, because we were talking to enough people running non-tech businesses who had been through this. That's the other funny thing. Like debt and tech seems weird and different. But if you go to traditional industries, you go to manufacturing, beverages, consulting, like there's a lot, there's debts just used a lot more. And, uh, the reason it's not using software usually is because they have to underwrite against something and it's how do you underwrite against software. And so that's why it's like less common. But with Excel, they underwrote against our revenue stream because we're a SaaS business. But long and short of it, I, I think it would have it would have taken many more buybacks over a longer period of time. And it wouldn't have given us as much leverage in the deal itself to actually get the terms that we wanted. You mentioned earlier that one of the uh, tough parts of being a founder is that things happen. And just because something's happening and just because it's going well doesn't mean that you can adequately explain it. There are all sorts of different variables that might be uh, playing a role that you might not analyze correctly. Uh, but let's try let's try to for a second. Wistay is an incredible business. Like You're able to dig yourself out of this hole pretty quickly. What do you think were the biggest forces that enabled you to sort of build this business? I think that we figured out early that if we could create an amazing brand experience for a customer, they would stick with us through tough times. And we went above and beyond in the early days from a support perspective on every single customer with insanely good support. And what that meant is that when people ran into a problem, we'd fix it instantly. They built almost more trust in every problem that we ran into. And I think the first 200 customers, we had like almost no one churning for years, which was amazing. And so we built up this like really solid base and figured out early that that matters. Over time, we figured out other ways to invest in that and to scale that. And so one of the most pivotal moments for us was we figured out, you know, we had to make a decision. Should we focus on enterprise customers or should we focus on small and medium-sized businesses? And we realized that like small and medium-sized businesses, the person who uses the product could also be the buyer. And we really cared about user experience. And we did not, we didn't think we were as good as like a complicated enterprise sale. So we made the focus to to go on SMB and that ended up being the right decision. And then we invested really heavily and really deeply in content. And we did that for a long time before the data told us that it was working. You know, we had qualitative data telling us it was working, but we didn't have quantitative data for probably you know two years from when we started making wild videos that it was worthwhile, but we trust ourselves and it and it really compounded and it and it continues to be you know the biggest driver of the business today. So basically, three things: number one, a pretty tremendous focus on a good customer experience, and so you reduced your churn, which is really impactful, especially for a SaaS business because every customer you prevent from quitting is basically like finding a new customer, and so it's like a huge. Multiplier for growth, focusing on the right target customer, the small businesses, and then investing heavily in content, even though you don't really have the ability to know if it's going to pay pay back what you're investing, you just sort of trusted in that. 
What are some things that you tried that perhaps didn't go as well? Uh, some strategies you guys invested in that you ended up abandoning? Yeah, a lot of the stuff that didn't go as well, I don't, I wouldn't say that it's specifically the tactics that was the issue, but it was often more the timing and context in the business. So there's multiple things that we've tried where, you know, someone had in, a, in that moment when we were trying to like grow at any cost, you know, someone would say, oh, I have this new idea for this new type of partner program. I'm like, that sounds awesome. Yeah. They're like, yeah, we've seen all these other companies doing it. We think it's going to work. Great. How many people do you need to do it? I need three. Fantastic. Here are three people. Go hire them. Go do it. And someone hires three people and they start building on this program and you're really excited that this thing is going to work. And then it doesn't work. And it doesn't work because the, there was a question that wasn't asked. And the question was, if we're doing this thing and it's so good, what should we stop doing so that we can start doing it? Like, Who are our best people that we should take and put onto that? Because there must be something we're trying that's not working because we're always trying things. And you should take your best people and put them on that new thing if you think it's the best opportunity. And so we were basically not breathing enough life into some of the projects we're saying yes to. And we also didn't have a rigor of actually stopping things. And uh, a lot of the things that we've tried over the years were often really good ideas that were done at the wrong time or done without enough of a budget or without enough of focus on the long term. And, you know, we didn't ask ourselves the question, for example, we made this website 50 Grove at one point. It was a video production directory. To get into it, you had to list the budgets that you worked on with examples of the work that you had made. And we thought marketers will love this because they can go to it. They can see how much it costs to make a, you know, a product overview video or a homepage video, and then they can connect with somebody. And that'll be great for our market. Well, we did this thing and we built it and people were using it, but we would always have to make a decision where we're deciding what to build on our products, which was like, do we spend more effort on 50 Grove or do we spend more effort into Wistia? Well, 50 Grove doesn't make any money. It doesn't capture any leads. It's a good thing for the community. We can invest a bunch into it and try to capture leads and try to make money. But like that seems too risky because Wistia is doing great. Just put more into Wistia. And at some point now you have a product that we've launched that's languishing because it's been 18 months since anyone worked on it. And then it's been two and a half years since anyone worked on it. But there's still emails that are going out when you sign up for it. And there's still connections being made on it. And uh, we should have admitted to ourselves in the first place, hey, if we're going to do this 50 Grove thing, we got to know we're committing to like a four or five year thing at the least, just like a startup. And if you're going to do that, how are you going to evaluate it? How are you going to set it up in the first place? They're getting the right data to tell us if this thing is working or not. Like, how do we align expectations up front? And almost everything we've done that has not worked well has been like misaligned expectations or not enough of a not an admission of what it takes to really maintain that thing. And uh, I think a lot of the lesson that we've relearned, you know, about like the business, how we take our best risks, why being profitable makes us confident, is just simply like it forces focus. It forces us to focus on the things that we think that we're the best at doing. And uh, having that as a constant conversation, I think is a really, really healthy thing. And whenever we've diverted focus or did things that we weren't going to be the best in the world at doing, that's when, that's when things haven't worked as well. You know, one of the cool things about Wistia is that because you've been around so long, you've had this longevity, you've probably been able to accumulate these lessons learned. You've probably been able to like go back to the drawing board and like retry things that didn't work out. Whereas a newer business just hasn't been around long enough to do that. 
Uh, let's say I'm looking at Wistia from the outside and thinking, hey, you know, I could do this. I want to get into this business. Let me start something. Uh, what are some things I would be missing? What are some things that like I might not know or understand because I don't have the experience that you guys have? So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of product stuff that we've done that's like really simple, but it's easy to miss. In Wistia, you know, the uh, there's still people who sign up and they use our our analytics, which give you an engagement graph to show you how people are watching your videos second by second, what they're skipping, what they're rewatching, um, how you're losing your audience on an individual basis, how people are watching. And this is data that we've had for a long time and it doesn't feel like a remarkable thing anymore, but I still talk to people all the time who've just signed up for Wistia and they're like, wow, this is my favorite thing in there. You know, they get really pumped and really excited about it. And it's, you know, there's a lot going on at Wistia. So it's easy to miss that. I think Soapbox is something I'm super proud of, which is our Chrome extension that lets you record your webcam and your screen um, simultaneously and then make easy transitions so that you can make something that looks professional and then there's a huge content arm of Wistia, which I've mentioned has been like the backbone of how we've marketed ourselves. And we've been going bigger on the content that we've been doing the last couple of years, which has been really fun um, and also really effective. So last year, we launched a documentary that's a, a four-part documentary, but it's feature length. It's an hour and 30 minutes long called 110100, where we gave um, Sandwich Video, an LA production company, $111,000 and had them make three ads for us. Uh, one ad with a $1,000 budget, one ad with a $10,000 budget, and one ad with a $100,000 budget. And then we documented the creative process and tried to look at the link between money and creativity. It's a super fun project to do. It's done really well. We won a Webby, which is amazing for like best brand entertainment. And right now we have another new series that's coming out actually tomorrow from when we're doing this recording called Brandwagon, where I'm interviewing folks about brand marketing and trying to demystify it because we keep getting questions about that. So yeah, there's just, there's a lot, there's always a lot going on, which is really fun. And I, I think, you know, culturally we've been a company that just celebrates creativity and, and, um, celebrates like being who we are. You know, we try to make our outsides match our insides. And so when you're watching videos, the people in the videos, the people who do the stuff, that's actually them. And the expert of whatever we're talking about is the person who's on camera. And uh, yeah, it's it's fun. Let's talk about Brandwagon for a second. Most people listening to the show are, are trying to start early stage businesses. Uh, when you think about brand marketing, you kind of think of Coca-Cola. You think of really big companies. What do you think a, an early stage founder needs to do in terms of brand marketing, if anything? So yeah, that's a great question. And it's funny, I, I think everybody has a brand whether or not you want to. So if you don't want to have a brand, your brand representation will be that you don't want to have a brand and that you don't care about it. And I, I actually think instinctually, a lot of startups and early stage companies are good at figuring out that the experience that they create for their customers that is beyond their product matters. And so what I would say is like, try to be proactive in the early stages around who you think your target customer is and how they feel and how you want them to feel after they interact with you. Is that a thing that you should start thinking about before you have traction? Or should it be like you're sort of pivoting around, you're trying to figure out what's worth working on. And then after you figure that out, then you start considering, okay, how do I slap like, you know, a really good customer experience on top of this? How do I now start considering these questions well, of what I want my users to feel. That's a great question. It's, I mean, it's tied into who your customer is, right? So if you're, the customer of your product is a consumer, 
well, consumers make brand decisions all the time. That's how it works. Like they make decisions based on things that entertain them. And they make decisions based on things that save them time sometimes. And they make decisions on things that make them feel cool. And so your brand better be somewhere in there helping them be more entertained or feel cool or do better in their career or something. You've got to be helping them feel something. And that's different than if your target customer is someone who works in an enterprise. Like, yes, of course, they're a human being and they probably want to feel cool and be entertained. And there's a huge opportunity there. But also, they, they usually just need to be more successful at their job. Like They want the next promotion. They want the next opportunity. And so you have to help them be a hero at work. And the question is, like, how does your brand, how does your brand deliver on that? And it's going to be some combination of just, you know, if it's a consumer product, it's basically the product and the packaging. And if it's an enterprise product, it is the product and it's, you know, customer success and service and support and, you know, a million other things. And so I do actually think what you should be thinking about from the first place is like, who is your target customer? and How can you help them? And then from there, you can start to figure out what do you want the experience to be? And what do you want the values of that to be? And how can you stand out in the world that you're operating in? And when you're thinking about those things, you're thinking about brand decisions, whether or not you know it. And I think in a startup, they're not going to use the word brand that much. And that's okay. But it is often, you know, for many companies, it's one of the things that helps them take off that they eventually later have to realize, wow, that is why. That is why people are choosing me. I love the way you put it, especially when you're describing sort of building a business that targets other businesses as your customers where you're really trying to make people feel like they're heroes at work. It reminds me of a, a talk given by Kathy Sierra, where she talked about creating the minimum badass user or making your users feel awesome. I highly recommend that to anybody listening in, but like that is really what you are going for. And if you can do that, then you've, you've really won. Totally. Yeah. And her talk on that, I think it was a business of software at first, but yeah, that's yep. an amazing talk and uh, totally worth watching. And I think it's one of those things that unfortunately is you know one of the reasons why startups is hard is people will make a product that is like a product that is an amazing product for them, but it doesn't actually make sense for any particular target customer, and uh, it doesn't it doesn't change for someone's life. And it's really getting in that mind frame that that helps you, I think, not only build better experiences but build better products. Yeah, that's the the limit of solving your own problem. At some point, you have to think about other people's problems and and their own yeah. emotional states. You said earlier when you're talking about the the acquisition that you were sort of pondering whether or not to accept or the multiple acquisitions that the way that you thought about it was that you sort of looked into the future you did your trademark thing and you you pictured how you would feel not just after the acquisition with you know the new money and the new job but like after that how do you think about the future now and where do you want to be with Wistia and where do you want to be personally in another five or ten years yeah I mean that's a great question it's something I think about all the time so first of all, I have I have two kids now, uh, one that is almost four and one that's one and a half. And I think about like what I want my life to be when they are older and know what's going on, and like that I want to be present. And assuming that I am working, which is my plan, I want them to see that you can be really fulfilled at work, um, and I want to be proud of the products that we're making and the impact they're making on the world. And I want them to. S- to see that, like that, like there, it, that is possible. Like I want them to shoot big and see that that is possible. And so that is like very motivating for me. I think, you know, I got this amazing advice a few years ago um, from Ben Chestnut, the co-founder and CEO of Mailchimp. And I was talking to him about my schedule and I was like, Hey man, like my schedule's crazy. And I'm trying to figure out how to fix it. 
Um, you know, I've got all these meetings. I've got so much stuff going on. I'm making all this content, blah, blah, blah. Like, how should I do this? And he, uh, I was like, basically, how can I be more productive? How are you productive? And he looked at me and he went, you don't have a productivity problem. You have a people problem. And I sat there and thought about that. I was like, I do not understand what you're saying. And he's like, you don't have the people who can own enough. Like, you need people who can own a lot more. You need people who can take things way farther than you. You need people who are really good at business. Like, you need people who are so good that they give you time. And you can use that time to think and you can use the time to do other things, but it's not actually about productivity packs. It's about having, it's about having the right people. And it's funny how one conversation can change how you think, but we had that, that conversation. And I started realizing, wow, like I have some of the right people, but I have some of the wrong people or the right people in the wrong roles. And we started moving things around. And so when I think about like how Wistia runs in five years from now, there's like more great people who are running more of the company. And it's allowing me and it's allowing my co-founder, Brendan, to think longer ter- even longer term in the future. So it makes it easier for us to make the decisions in the short term that ladder up to the long term. And then for Wistia, like more closer into strategy, what does it look like? You know, we've been going really big on content, which has been really fun and we've been learning a lot. And we've been going deeper on the things that you can do with video. And th- so I think you can expect from us, you're going to be seeing, we're going to, you're going to see Wistia solving more video problems, broader video problems, broader marketing problems, and really going deeper with content. And I think that's the stuff that, that lends itself well to, to how we work. Cool. Well, I love your content. Looking forward to seeing more of it. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show and having a great conversation with me. I've got one more question before I let you get out of here. Uh, people listening in, they're early stage founders. What do you think they should know as they get started on their journey to build a business? I think they should prepare for success from the beginning. So look at what you're trying to do and ask yourself the question, if this really works... Is this something I want to work on for a long time? If this really works, are these people that I want to work with? If this really works, is this kind of return the thing that seems like it's worthy of my time? Are these customers the types of customers that I want to spend my time with? And uh, I think if you can do that, it can make it easier to make a lot of those decisions that you will face in the early days where there isn't a clear way to go. But at least if you can come to terms with what you want and instinctually what feels good to you, then you're going to have fewer regrets. Prepare for success from the very beginning so you have fewer regrets in the long run. Thanks, Chris. Can you uh, tell us where we can go to find out more about Wistia and what you're up to? Yeah. Um, so you can find out more about Wistia at Wistia.com. Brandwagon is there. Soapbox is there. 110100 is all there. I'm on Twitter at csavage. And um, I also write, not as often as I like, but I I write on my blog, which is savagethoughts.com. All right. Thanks, Chris. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? 
If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.